Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Let's turn our attention to the Word of the Lord. We all face struggles. A little amen from the people, please. Mm-hmm. Being followers of Jesus does not erase that fact, nor does it give instant and perfect clarity to us on all matters. We sometimes face decisions, even as Christ followers, with confusion instead of clarity. And when you pile on top of the normal stuff of life, the fact that we Christ followers are trying to do specifically what God wants us to do in any one decision, it sometimes makes the decision-making a whole lot tougher for us to find our way through it. What are you going to do the next time that you face a difficult decision? Do you feel prepared to face the inevitable time when you find yourself on a collision course with a big decision that matters in your life? Jesus was authentically human, and it means that he faced big decisions like you and I do. And as the road to his appointment with destiny as the savior of this world grew shorter, he found himself facing the biggest decision of his life. Today, I want to tell you the story of how he faced that decision and found his way through it. If we then follow his example, whenever we face our life's big decisions, we can see the clouds of confusion begin to part, clarity come, and then receive something from God that is nearly unimaginable to me. I can't wait to tell you about it. Let me explain. The story comes from John chapter 12. If you want to kind of follow along or you want to read it later today, John chapter 12. But it finds Jesus getting ready to make another trip uh, to the Passover. You, you may remember from the last couple of weeks that we've been talking about the ministry of Jesus. And I started with Jesus in Cana of Galilee, pressured into performing a miracle by his mom, goes into hiding because he became instantly popular. And then a few days later, he's heading down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, at which point he cleansed the temple. He went in there and, and roughed some people up and ran, um, ran a few businesses uh, into ruin and said, I'm just doing what the Father told me to do, and you people should quit treating his house like this. Remember that story? Well, by the time we get to John chapter 12, We are now about two years, some scholars say three, but two-ish year, two to three years on down the road, and Jesus is getting ready to make another trip back down to Jerusalem for the Passover, and this time he took a little bit different road. Why don't you look at the map on the screen, okay? Um, If you look right down here, everybody see the red dot, okay, and then this little red square, rectangle? That's basically the land of Israel on a, uh, on a world map. Africa down here, Europe up here. Um, at the time Jesus was alive, the uh, land mass existed over here, but the United States did not. But that's, we're orienting ourselves to the map. Jesus grew up up here in the north, okay? Up, up here, this little blue area right here is the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus grew up here, all, this whole area, Nazareth, you can see. Stories are told of Jesus making his, his way to Jerusalem and, uh, on a number of occasions and him having co- uh, contact with some people who were known as Samaritans. The Samaritans lived in this area right over in here, and they and the Jews did not get along. In fact, a whole lot of Jews would not even walk through that land because they thought that it made them defiled. It made them so filthy that God couldn't possibly tolerate them. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? That the sins of other people are what really keep me from God. (laughs) 
How about a little self-awareness for uh, the people of God, okay? Uh, This time, however, Jesus uh, decided not to make his way straight down here to Jerusalem, but instead he crossed the Jordan up here and he made his way on through this area over here. And this is modern-day Jordan and uh, its capital, Amman. This whole region up here in the time of Jesus was fairly heavily populated, and it had 10 significant towns there. And so that area became known as the Decapolis. Deca, 10, polis from the, um, from the Latin word for city, Decapolis. Jesus made his way uh, down through the Decapolis this time, and as he was working his way from town to town, he was doing some of those signs that John has been talking to us about in earlier weeks, the things that are not magic tricks to get people to view him with popularity, but instead signs that he was performing in order to reveal to the people his true identity as number one, the promised Messiah or grand fixer of God's people, two, as God himself come in the flesh. He's performing miracles along the way, and as he's making his way through the Decapolis, he's gaining this time a literal following because he's making his way down to Jerusalem for the feast at the same time that a few of the Jews in that area were making their way down. But there were an awful lot of people who were Gentiles, not Jews, who lived in the 10 cities of the Decapolis, but Jerusalem was a rocking place to be on Passover weekend, so it drew people who were not just Jews to the city for the festivities. And we learned that as Jesus was making his way through the Decapolis, he was performing these signs and heading down to Jerusalem, and there's a literal crowd joining him, some Jews and some Gentiles. And it's, this is news, people, because everybody's going down to the, to the feast, but this time the thing feels different. Because as Jesus goes, there are people saying, Messiah, Rome's going to take it on the chin, Messiah. And this thing begins to take on a life of its own, this massive group of people as they're making their way down toward Jerusalem. Well, Jesus arrives at a little town called Bethany. Bethany is about two miles just outside of Jerusalem. There's the nation's capital, two miles just over from from Jerusalem. He arrives at Bethany and he says to the crowd that's following him, hey, the disciples and I, we have to go to a private dinner party, uh, but the good people of Bethany will be glad to play host to you, I think. So Jesus goes into this private home for a dinner party. And uh, the followers that came with him, they congregated with those people from Bethany and some folks from Jerusalem who had come from the big city out to the town because they had heard that Jesus was coming out there. Also because they had heard that there was another celebrity in Bethany that they wanted to perhaps catch a glimpse of. We'll talk about him in just a moment. Jesus and his disciples go into the house and and this formal dinner party is arranged and it is being given in honor of, of Jesus. You're familiar, perhaps, if you know at, at all the story of Jesus about the time that he spoke to the, uh, the others in the room and said, you know, the greatest, you know, the greatest person is, it's the servant of all. And he took the position of a servant and he took the towel and the basin and he began to wash people's feet to do servant duty. That was not this story. In this story, Jesus allowed himself to be seated at the head of the table as the guest of honor because the whole meal was, be, was being given as a way of honoring him by the people who were planning it. There's another guy at the table. 
He was the celebrity that I mentioned earlier. His name was Lazarus. Lazarus had, be, pardon me, become a celebrity because he had died, laid in the grave for three, four days until he stunk very much bad. Then Jesus came, bursts into tears in front of everybody, and then says, open the casket. And one of Lazarus' sisters said, Jesus, no. Jesus said, stand by. You're about to see the power of God. And choking back the tears, he says, hey, Lazarus, come out. So he came out all wrapped up, mummy-like, and he said, well, cut him loose, people. And so they, they cut their grave clothes loose. And Lazarus was instantly a celebrity, and people were flocking to see him. And some scholars think Lazarus had to go into hiding because he was just being mobbed like, you know, everybody would be. If you were dead for a few days, they had your funeral, and then you came back to life. Well, Lazarus comes out of hiding. He's here at the party with Jesus. Martha, one of the sisters, is doing her very best to make it formal and prim and proper and beautiful. If you read another account of this story, Martha gets this attitude toward her sister Mary and says, Mary never helps. You should get on to her, Jesus. But in this version of the story, Mary is also serving. She's serving by washing Jesus' feet. That thing that I talked about a little bit earlier, the the job of the least servant in the household, Mary decides that she is going to go and wash Jesus' feet. Very common practice. What was a little bit less common was to anoint the feet of the guest with perfume. You know how this works, right? You've been around, say, junior hires. I'm sorry, but I'm going to talk about junior hires. Sorry, junior hires. And, um, but all you senior hires, give me the knowing look because you know what I'm talking about. It works like this. I coached for a lot of years, and I don't know why it is that there's a break between eighth grade and ninth grade. In ninth grade, you understand that the way to smell clean is to take a shower. Seventh and eighth grade, the way to smell clean is put on more axe, <laughs> right? Just put on more and more. Well, um, people had stinky feet in Jesus' day, just like they do now. And sometimes they would wash the, the feet of the guests when they came in. And, and it wasn't really about odor control like odor eaters. But there was this, this added little something, something that people would do once in a while. And yes, it helped with the odor. But more than anything, it was a way of just showing additional honor and affection for one person in the room. And so Mary takes some perfume, some very expensive perfume, and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. Jesus being anointed is not a unique experience. If you read your way through all of the the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that there was another time in which Jesus was having dinner at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' place, and Mary anointed Jesus' head with perfume. There's another story that takes place up in Galilee that's way up there in in the north end of the country where Jesus grew up. There's a story that takes place up there uh, about an unnamed woman who anointed Jesus' feet with something else, with her tears. And she then dried his feet that had become wet with her tears with her hair. And now we have this story in which Mary decides to wash the feet of Jesus, to anoint the feet of Jesus, but she did it with this unbelievably expensive perfume. 
And the passage, John 12, tells us that it was a fairly big jar and it was, it was full of really expensive perfume. And, and it, it resembles, we think, um, or represents her life savings. It was something of an investment in the, the whole trading in perfume and spices. And so, yeah, it was like that taken up several notches. Okay, they don't sell that stuff in court jars. But uh, Mary had this extremely expensive perfume, probably resembled, represented her life's savings, may have been her actual life savings, an entire year's working salary. Okay? She takes this, dumps the whole thing on Jesus' feet. Man, I was so looking forward to today's uh, sermon. So I went out and I bought uh, perfume. And I was going to break the jar. Really dramatic. Tom, you'd have loved this. I was going to break the jar and dump the entire thing out. But I'm a cheapskate. So I found this $10 perfume at Ross. It was like 35 before the, you know, it went to Ross. But um, yeah, just, you know, the really good stuff. <laughs> and uh it's a big, pretty bottle. And um, I got it home, and I took one sniff of it, and I thought, we're going to smell that in the carpet here for years to come. And it was horrible. So I just, it's sitting on my dresser. So white elephant gift next year, people, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was expensive perfume and good perfume, and I hope everybody in the house liked it because the, the smell was, was overpowering. And, and it was so thick that... that have you ever had perfume so thick that you can taste it? Yeah, that's what we're talking about because the entire jar was dumped out. Perfume was this lavish sign of affection and the smell lasted all through the dinner party, all evening long, probably the next day for the people in the house. Probably when the guys got up the next morning, they went, oh yeah, I remember. And in the middle of this incredible display of honor, for this man who's been showing himself to be Messiah, Judas says, man, that was a waste. I know what that was worth. That was hard-earned money that people donated to this ministry. It should have been used to feed poor people. And we all said, amen. There's something right about what he's saying, isn't there? Sure there is. But there's something wrong about what he's saying too. Judas was right. It could have been used to feed the poor and that would have been a good thing. But Jesus corrected Judas like he was wrong. He said, Judas, you'll always have the poor with you. But I won't be here much longer. See, Mary wasn't being wasteful. She was being lavish. There's a very real difference between wastefulness and lavishness. Wastefulness is caused by a lack of appreciation for the thing that you have. Lavishness is caused by a deep appreciation and an affection for what you have. Interestingly enough, the actions end up looking somewhat the same, which one more time illustrates that we probably shouldn't judge people's hearts. Huh? Yeah. Anointing was this powerful statement that, that made people uncomfortable. It was great for her to wash his feet. It was okay for her to anoint his feet because everybody already knew that Jesus was the guest of honor. But when she dumped the whole jar out, people started thinking, 
And some of them got critical and said, well, don't you think that was a little over the top? And she said, yeah, that was kind of the point, to go over the top so that people could see how much I love him. Which made them all wonder, do I love him that much? I mean, she made us all look like we're less devoted. She's so lavish in her love for him. Well, it got worse. After Mary had uh, done the usual, the washing, and then the honorable by anointing, and the lavish by going hog wild with all of her life savings, she ventured as far as the scandalous. And she began to then wipe the excess perfume off of his feet with her hair. Look at that picture. Now you and I, that have been around the church for any length of time, we find this to be a beautiful thing. But if it happened here this morning, several of you would significantly freak out. Wouldn't you? How about this? Let's just pick one person. Well, let's, let's pick two people. I need somebody with longish hair. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with Deborah Liber. Okay. And then let's, uh, let's see... Um, um, maybe Dwayne Jones. Okay, everybody getting uncomfortable? I'm sure Deborah and <laughs> Dwayne are. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I know, I know a youth pastor, a, a, a woman who was a youth pastor who washed the kids in her youth group's feet and then she dried her feet with, dried their feet with her hair and they fired her. Yeah. They said, that's completely inappropriate. Reenacting the Bible scene. (laughs) Congratulations, board, you got it wrong, you know. To kind of get the picture here, maybe I can can make this a little bit more modern. Let's say that that I'm going about my duties here at the church on on any given day, and uh, Dina Johnson works here too because she teaches at the school which means that she's busy, 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 and she runs up and down the steps 900 times a day. But I just happen to come out of my office when Dina's coming um, across the foyer with this box, and Dina's not a very big person, and the box is a very big box, and so she's, she's struggling with it. And I walk up to Dina and say, wow, Dina, that looks like you're having a really rough go, um, and there's two ways this could go. I could then just take the box and say, where are we going? And I take it up to her classroom. There, it's done. And everybody says, that'd be really great, Cliff. If, on the other hand, I said, hey, Dean, put the box down for a minute. And I, n- I noticed that you're sweating. And I began to just kind of mop the sweat off of her face. She'd say, ew, yeah, <laughs> really, that fast? Ew. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> but this isn't wiping the perfume off of Jesus' feet with her hands, but with her hair. So this, is, this is me coming to Dina in the foyer and saying, Dina, you look like you're having a rough go. And I take my shirt off and begin to mop the sweat off of Dina's face and get one arm around her and hug her and tell her how much I appreciate her hard work. Creepy. <laughs> right? That's the picture. Is that inappropriate? 
Yeah, it is. It completely is. It completely is. All of our social mores would have been broken down between any man and any woman who are not married to one another, let alone between pastor and someone in his congregation. You must understand that it is wrong to sanitize the stories in the Bible because this was raging scandal on purpose. This woman did not care what anybody thought about her. She loved Jesus. You know why? She was getting ready to have dinner with her dead brother. She said, I could care less what the world thinks. I'm going to go and show Jesus how much I love him. Of a different picture, isn't it? Scandalous? Yep. I mean, if I said, I did it for Jesus, Dina, it still feels a little, yeah. Feel the, ah, in this thing, because it's there. Outside the house, the, the folks from Galilee up north and the, the folks from the Decapolis over on the east side of the Jordan and the folks who lived in Bethany and the folks from Jerusalem who'd made their way out to the little town were having a discussion while the dinner party was going on. The Galileans, the people up north who had seen the bulk of Jesus' ministry, the bulk of his ministry was all way up north in those towns around, around the little lake. All those folks from Galilee were saying, you are not going to believe this guy. He has been healing people in droves. He knows the law and the prophets like no rabbi you've ever heard. I know you think that our rabbis up in the north are second class compared to the guys who are down in Jerusalem, but not this guy. He knows the law and the prophets like no rabbi you've ever heard. He makes food for thousands of people practically out of thin air. He walks across lakes like they're dry ground, and he drops the hammer on uptight religionists. We kind of like it. And what's so strange, so delightfully strange, is that he's the most religious person we've ever met. But in all the right ways. And he still loves to party. He's amazing. We think he's the Messiah. And the people from the Decapolis said, well, we've we've been seeing the same thing for the last little while. Every town he went to, the stories just got better and better and better. Some of us aren't Jews, so we don't know a whole lot about your Messiah figure, but he's he's either that or he's a God come to this earth. We even heard that he raised some guy from the dead down here somewhere in the south. And the folks from Bethany said, he did. We saw it and smelled it. And the guy lives in that house right over there. That's who Jesus is having dinner with. His name's Lazarus. And his sisters wanted to do something nice for Jesus because he, their brother. There were some other people listening that day. They were priests. They said, this thing is getting out of hand fast. Temple attendance is plummeting. Tithes, (laughs) they're going somewhere else. And then they said, we're going to have to kill Jesus and Lazarus, or we will be out of business. Now, I'm, I know lots of people say things in the heat of battle that, you know, if ever they have a while to think about it, they, they would unsay some of those things. Don't try to kill the guy who's already died, been resurrected, because um, my guess is that if you kill him first, Jesus is going to resurrect him again that quick, and now you've got the twice-killed Lazarus that you have to deal with going around saying, I told you he was the Messiah, Right? Killing Lazarus, not a good part of the plan. 
The next day, Jesus and the disciples head into Jerusalem, and the crowd that has been amassing along the route down through the Decapolis into Bethany, and now the crowd from Bethany with them, they all head into Jerusalem. Someone runs ahead to the Jerusalem temple and yells, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's almost here. He just left Bethany, so they knew which gate to run to. They ran out there. The temple empties. People start this impromptu, unauthorized, sort of worship-slash-coronation service. And in it, they did some things that you are probably familiar with. The law said that um, people were supposed to use tree branches for a certain kind of religious worship alone. And it was for a little celebration that the Jews did called the Feast of Tabernacles, where once a year they would come into Jerusalem like they did for the Passover. And this time, instead of staying in the homes of their relatives and friends, they built temporary shelters like tents, some called them booths. And it was a time for them to remember as a people that at one point we were nomadic. We didn't have a home. It was before the promise that God had made to us had been fulfilled and we had to live like vagabonds out in the desert. And so for a week or so every year, they would come and they would tear down some limbs out of the trees in town and they would use them in some sort of a waving response to God and then also use them to to build some tent-like structures. But that was what the law stipulated specifically for the Feast of Tabernacles. But this day, the people go out and in some sort of religious hysteria and nationalistic hysteria, they start climbing the trees and breaking the limbs down off of them and they're half trying to crown Jesus king and half worshiping him like he might actually be God come to earth. They were making both religious and political claims for him, as Jeff Foxworthy, patron saint of my people, would say. It was pandelirium! (laughs) They were going a little bit nuts. Hmm. Some of you know Foxworthy. Come on now. He's your people too. Um, The Pharisees were trying to shut down this political talk, but the people kept saying, he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Fact! The guy has power. Perhaps We should give him an office. They tried to shut down the religious talk, but the people just started this chant. They'd point at Lazarus, Lazarus. Point at Jesus, Messiah, Lazarus, Messiah. And before long, this thing is just boiling over the top. In Jerusalem, the city's going nuts. Government officials, both religious government officials and secular government officials, both Jews and Gentiles, very, very tense because this thing now had revolt written all over it. There's this pregnant tension. Something is going to happen. Doesn't feel very good when you're in charge. Jesus then is in the city while this thing is reaching its, its peak. People are mobbing him. Jesus was then approached by two disciples, Andrew and Philip, two of the disciples who had Greek names. They had been approached by some Greek Gentiles from the Decapolis, most likely, who'd said, hey, we want to meet this Jesus fella. And we thought we might have an in with you because you two have Greek names. And so John tells us that Andrew and Philip made their way to Jesus and said, hey, these, uh, these, these Gentiles over here want to see you. And what's fascinating to me is that instead of Jesus giving an answer, instead of Jesus taking it as a literal request, Jesus now says, I just got a sign. 
See, he's been providing signs for the people all over the land of Israel for the last three years. And here he says, that's the sign I was looking for. Now I know that it's time to do the whole Messiah thing. See, he'd been a couple of years before up there in Galilee, minding his own business, going to a wedding, and his mother said, do that Messiah thing. He said, not now. It's not time. Mom forced her way, played his cards a little bit early, had to go into hiding. All during the years of his earthly ministry, people would go, I see it! You're the... And he would say, shh, don't tell anyone. It's not time. We get through the triumphal entry, resurrection of Lazarus, the meal, the triumphal entry. We're in the city. People are saying, tearing the trees down, saying, let's work on the Roman palace next. And two Gentiles say, we'd like to see Jesus. And Jesus said, you s- Gentiles? The whole world was coming after him. And he said, now it's time. It's time for him to play his hand. Hadn't been time back in Cana, but it was now. And as Jesus talked to the crowd there about what that meant, he said that it turned his heart inside out in very bad ways. In fact, the language in the original text says, my soul has been thrown into confusion. There's a picture of Jesus you've never had, the confused Jesus. Who painted that one? You don't find that anywhere. There's no confused Jesus stained glass windows, right? My soul, this is what the text says. My soul has been thrown into confusion. Jesus was stumbling beneath the emotional weight of knowing the pain that was coming his way. He was stumbling beneath the knowledge of the extent of that suffering. And he was stumbling beneath the weight of indecision. Am I going to see this thing through or am I not? We happen to know from reading John's text that he struggled with that more than once. Jesus' inner world was frayed a little bit at the edges, and it came out on display in this conversation. And he begins to anguish out loud, but then he powers through it, and he makes this decision to obey. And here's what I want to show you this morning. Get a hold of this. Jesus didn't wait for clarity or peace as the signs of God's will for him. He already knew God's will. Clarity and peace could only come from obedience. See, when you already know what God's will is, clarity and peace can only come after you obey. Hmm. Jesus puts his head down. He powers through the indecision. And as soon as he does, John says, The voice of God thunders from heaven and seconds the motion, affirms him, and confirms his will. Absolutely amazing. Everybody there said something happened and a few people went, it's just thunder. Yeah, thunder that sounded like God saying, I have glorified my name and will do it again, period. Other people said, well, it couldn't have been God. It must have been an angel. Is there any difference? Like that makes this less of a sign. You know what John says next? He says that even after that, most people didn't believe. Water into wine, countless healings. 
controlling the weather, interrupting the laws of physics, resurrecting the dead, fulfilling prophecies from long ago, and God talking from heaven in front of everyone. And most people still didn't believe. Huh. Most people only believed enough to be fans, not disciples. Jesus' collision course with destiny was a pile-up at this point. It was a collision with priests, a collision with Pharisees, a collision with the crowds, a collision with his own inner indecision. Note the progression. Jesus said, I'm confused, verse 27. He confesses it out loud, also verse 27. He then makes a choice, and it's in verse 28 that clarity comes. Confusion, confession, choice, clarity. Now, fasten your seatbelts. We're going for a ride. This next part is unbelievable. It's in verse 26. Let me read it to you. I'm going to back up a little bit. Read um, from verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. That is, to be recognized as God and given all of the oh, that God gets. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here we go now, listen. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. If you've been around the church your whole life, you've been taught your whole life that you are supposed to honor God. You've been taught that you are supposed to recognize him for who he is and then do what you do so that God looks good and God gets glory. Right? Nod your heads with me if you're with me. In this passage, Jesus says, if you follow me, my father... We'll honor you. Some of the glory that is supposed to be reserved for God and God alone, the Father will then take and give to you. Does that mess anybody up like it messes me up? Because I don't think I'm all that glorious. I have a hard time when people clap for me. Doesn't feel right. Jesus said, in the middle of all this confusion, confession, down the list, that on the backside of this thing, if you follow me, if you follow my example, there's honor, there's glory for you. And listen, where people get into trouble is trying to get that for themselves. Instead, Jesus says, you work this part of the process, you watch what God does. And my Father himself will pour out honor and glory upon you. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what you can do with it. I don't know if it's worth any money. I, but all I know is that if there is something that the holy God of heaven 
wants to do for me that otherwise only rightfully belongs to him, I gotta have that. I want that more than anything. This thing that exclusively belongs to God but that he wants to give to me. Listen, friends, I am, like you, a person who faces decisions. Big ones. You might have noticed some of them that I've made. Where do you struggle? Where's the confusion in your life? Is it that you don't know God's will or that you don't want to obey it? If you don't know God's will, be patient and wait. But that's not who the text is speaking to. This text is speaking to those who know God's will but do not want to obey it. If you don't want to obey the known will of God for your life, let me recommend to you the following. First, realize where you are in that process, that progression. You confused or not? Do you need to confess where you are in resisting God's will? And what comes next if you want anything to change? You are going to have to make a choice. You have to make a decision. The fact is that you are not going to get clarity and you are not going to get peace until you choose. It's the way it goes in this life. But if you do, if you will, you'll get clarity, you'll get peace, and you will get something nearly unimaginable. God himself will honor you. I don't know. Maybe it means you get credit for some of the good things God does in this world. That might help your reputation a little. People might begin to see you as somehow different in a very good way. They might begin to confuse you for Jesus himself in this world. Not any kind of, you know, messianic overtones. Just, that gal's a lot like Jesus. Wasn't that the plan? Hmm. Bottom line is this. Obedience is the key to moving from confusion to clarity. We'll leave the glory, the unimaginable, in the hands of the Father, who we've already learned doesn't have a problem with being lavish, right? He would gladly waste his glory on you. I want to ask you to stand with me today. Bow your heads, close your eyes. And just say this. The altars are open. That's what these wooden things that look like benches are at the front of our sanctuary. They are altars. I know that God's everywhere. Like we acknowledged at the beginning of the service, he meets us wherever we are. I'm grateful for that. But I also know that an altar is another sign. It points to something. It points to a surrendered heart. It's the, the, the trip from where you stand now to where you would kneel at this altar is a symbolic movement from where I have been stuck to the place I want to be in relationship to God. So let me just ask you this morning. You're struggling with confusion. You need to know the will of God. I want to invite you to come to the altar and pray. But more pointedly, 
Do you know the will of God? You've been resisting following his will? Today you're willing to confess, I'm moving the direction of obedience, but Lord, I need your help. Would you come and give me the want to? And I want to invite you to this altar to pray. Let's bow our heads. You make up your minds. Lord, speak to your people. Folks, you don't have to be ashamed to come and kneel. We've all been stuck before against the will of God that we know. Lord, I cannot imagine being in the spot you were in where you could have ridden the wave of popularity and seen how far it would take you. Jesus, you might have had a kingdom on this earth in visible, recognizable form instead of billions of people today questioning whether you ever really existed, mocking your name. You could have had it. You were caught, confused, you said, between what you knew and what you felt, what the Father wanted and what you thought you wanted. But you said, this is the whole reason that I came in the first place. And you started, you started that death march. And by the time you were on the cross at the peak of the physical suffering, you testified to some kind of peace. Father, don't hold it against him. Father, receive my spirit. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are kneeling here this morning. I don't know what they're seeking, an answer to a big problem, one they've faced for years. Big decision, lot on the table. Whether they're kneeling before you in submission to your will today, or just asking, please help me to want what you want for me. But I pray that you would take so very seriously their symbolic journey to this place of prayer. I pray that you would hear their cries. Answer them today with the strength that they need to obey your will and that you would confirm it with peace following. Lord, we're facing Good Friday and Easter. Twin poles in this redemption story. Horrible, black, ugly day. And the best day ever. You had to make a decision to take the steps down that path. These friends of mine who have decided to follow you, I ask for your abundant peace. In your name I pray. Amen. Since folks are praying, I'd ask that you kind of preserve the environment of prayer in this room, that you wait till you're in the foyer or the parking lot to, to visit and talk. But as you go, may you follow the example of Christ himself. So may you know his peace this day. Amen.